0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Here you go. Here you go. Gore. That's the word of the day for nothing personal. Not gore as in gory. Gore as in Frank Gore. As in, did you realize that gore is historically productive? 100 people surveyed top four answers on the board. Can you name the top three rushers in the history of the National Football League? Most yards. Yes, that would be Walter Payton. That would be Emmett Smith. And yesterday, Frank Gore passed Barry Sanders to become the third leading rusher in NFL history. Why is he worthy of a word of the day? Because this is historic And if you ask anyone, they would tell you he's barely a top 25 running back in the history of the NFL. They'd probably rank him at 25. I personally would have to rank him at three because isn't being a running back about getting yards? Don't tell me it's because he played a lot of years. I never bought into that. Do you know how hard it is to be a professional athlete for a lot of years? You have to stay healthy, you have to stay clean, and then you actually have to be productive to keep getting the ball. Frank Gore, congratulations. We did not appreciate you the way we should have here in Miami as a member of the Miami Dolphins. I am very happy that you're still going at it. You need 3,000 yards to become number one. I have no reason to believe that you will, but congrats anyway. You've been gored. Jerry Jones gives me stuff to talk about every weekend, so this is just a thank you to Jerry Jones from me to you, just personally to say that when the Cowboys play a game and I'm watching like I did yesterday, who wasn't watching, the Patriots and the Cowboys, what's better than a football game when the weather's bad, it's freezing cold, Bill Belichick goes from his hoodie to his parka, and you can only see his microphone? You're watching, of course you are. And you're saying, wow, the Cowboys are just not in the same league as the New England Patriots. Very often as an owner, we think that the fans don't see what we see. We say things like we watch the game differently than you do. We are paying attention to little nuances that you don't. Well, if you're Jerry Jones, you're paying attention to everything the fans are paying attention to, and that is that their team has not performed, not just this year, but it's now been decades. The last time the Cowboys were in a championship game, the NFC Championship, I'm going to say it was 1996. That's way too long. So, what does Jerry Jones do at the end of every game? He meets the media and I have no problem with that. I've complimented him on this show for owning up to the fact that he's the owner, president, GM. He's everything, and what he says goes. But when you have that position and you have that microphone and platform, just be careful what you say, because otherwise you end up on nothing personal and here's what he said yesterday. He called out his team. As you know, Jason Garrett's been hanging on by a thread. It is shocking that he has not been let go after nine basically ineffective years. All of that said, Jason Garrett's job has been very tenuous, and early in the day yesterday before the game, a rumor came out that Jason Garrett would have a preferred landing spot at MetLife Stadium. It could be either team at MetLife Stadium at this point, but with the New York Giants. Now, forget the fact that the New York Giants would be very sorry to hire Jason Garrett. The fact is, when you hear a rumor that one of your coaches or players would prefer or may end up somewhere else, you take that very seriously and you react very aggressively. And that's what Jerry Jones did. After the game, he called out his team, especially his special teams, and he said something as general but incredibly specific as... It is unacceptable how our special teams performed and how they executed. Well, that's not the only thing about the team that was unacceptable. The quality of play, the quality of players, and the quality of coaching have all let the Cowboys down. But what Jerry Jones is doing is from page four of the owner playbook, except he delivered the message as the GM. Page four of the playbook says, start to plant the seeds for the end of days and these will be the end of Jason Garrett's days. It's just a matter of if not when. It's likely they'll let him go to the end of the season. After all, they are still in position to make the playoffs. But Jerry Jones watched his team yesterday and knew immediately that his team could not compete yet again for another Super Bowl. And then he went home and he watched the night game where it became even clearer that the Niners and the Packers are even just as hard to get through it just to get into the Super Bowl as a member of the NFC. So my advice to you, Jerry, you're going to get rid of Garrett. You're likely to get rid of all assistant coaches. There is a guy in Rutgers named Shavano who's available just in case you're looking to give someone a few hours in your private plane. Did you see the video of what went on yesterday? I, uh, I was angry and I tweeted angry. Don't tweet angry sort of like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, don't drive angry, don't tweet angry, and I did. I find it unacceptable what went on during the tailgate before the Browns game last night. The Cleveland Browns fans built a pinata, and then they had a blindfolded person swing a helmet, a Steelers helmet, to try to hit Mason Rudolph, which is exactly what Miles Garrett did and got himself suspended. What's shocking is the number of people who are videoing this What's shocking is the woman wearing number 13 who's playing it. And what's shocking is the person in her life, whether it's her significant other or friend, who is putting the pinata around so that she can't actually hit it. The irony is what actually happened is he should have kept the pinata completely stationary because that's what Rudolph was, stationary when Garrett hit him. Is this surprising that this goes on in Cleveland? To me, it's not. I take you back to 1989 and an old coach that too many people have stopped having heard of whose name was Sam Weish. Sam Weish was the coach of the Cincinnati Bagels and a very famous coach at that. And there was a game going on where the fans in Cincinnati were delaying play by throwing things on the field. Sam Weish took the microphone in what will go down to me as the single most famous incidence of a coach taking the PA microphone and yelled at his fans in Cincinnati, you don't live in Cleveland. Think about what he said, Clevelanders. That was back 30 years ago. Well, it seems like your reputation is well earned, but it's not all of you. I heard from plenty of people on Twitter at David P Sampson responding saying they were horrified. But I also got word from other people, what am I doing being so serious? I got about 17 okay boomers. Well, if boomer means that I think it's disgraceful and unreasonable that fans take a helmet to a pinata of Mason Rudolph and hit that pinata because that's what one of their players did, then label me boomer, label me disgraceful. I wear it proudly. If I'm the front office of the Cleveland Browns, I'm taking a stand today I'm releasing something today saying we do not agree with what our fans did. Do you know how hard it is for a front office to go against its fan base? How hard it is to turn away from possible revenue? The difficulty I would feel of saying anything negative about the few fans I have. But at some point there's a principle. And the owner of the Cleveland Browns, his wife wore a Miles Garrett toque to yesterday's game. It seems to me you're not going to be hearing any sort of apology from the Cleveland Browns organization anytime soon. And maybe Sam Weish was right. So since we're talking about boomers, I got a boomer for you. Uh, Dwayne Haskins yesterday. I know that everybody has seen the tape. This is one of the top tapes of all time. Let me set the stage for you and why this is a much bigger deal than you are all making it out to be. This is Dwayne Haskins above my shoulder and this is him taking a selfie with a fan. As a president of a team for 18 years, I can tell you I encourage players at all times to sign autographs, take photographs, do anything to make a memory with a fan. But not while you're supposed to be on the field. Somehow, some way that memo got lost. And for whatever reason Dwayne Haskins thought the game was over. So instead of taking the field to take one last end-of-game formation and one last snap, he was off the field celebrating his first career victory. And while off the field, ostensibly heading toward the locker room, he stopped and took a selfie with a fan who has gone viral on social media with how amazing a moment this was. This was not an amazing moment. It was made worse by the interim coach Callahan in Washington, acting like he, it was funny. Saying, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, but he was guffawing. Well, this is not a laughing matter to any of his teammates, no matter what they say on social media or what they're saying right now to the front office. Because what they're saying in the clubhouse is something different. They've approached Haskins, and they're treating him like veterans would treat a rookie, and they are hazing him to the point where he will never do anything like that again. You think Case Keenum wanted to get in the game to take that kneel? Do you think that was the plan, that Haskins would get the play off? No. The plan was that Haskins was supposed to be in that game. And this is a signal of something that is pervasive throughout professional sports now. Why is it that the younger players can dismiss their behavior and they can dismiss the fact that they are not paying attention to basic rules of being professional and then dismiss it because we're boomers and they're not? because they've got social media and we don't, because they speak in three-letter words like LOL and SMH and LMAO and PDQ. Well, you don't have to speak those letters to know that if you want to be part of a winning football team, you better pay attention to the fact that your first job is to finish the game and win the game, because if you don't do that, no one's going to want your selfie. So, Dwayne, let this be the last time this ever happens And to the gentleman who made this go viral, the only thing I can say to you is I'm glad you got your selfie, but you could have waited an extra 30 seconds and then no one would have had a problem at all. We at MLB used to, uh, we were always very jealous of the other leagues and we'd always say that we were not paying attention to what the NFL was doing and not paying attention to what uh, the NBA was doing. But believe you me, the MLB pays very close attention to what the NFL and the NBA do, and the NFL pays close attention to the NBA and MLB. There are a lot of times when the commissioners all get together and owners get together. Sometimes there's even cross-ownership, and they talk and they share ideas. But 99.9% of the time, it is an absolute competition for eyeballs and for revenue. The NBA did something this weekend that they announced they're thinking of doing and changing that, to me, puts MLB on notice. The NBA is thinking of implementing some significant rules changes in time for their 75th anniversary season, which would be the 21-22 season. Why is this news today? Because the way it works with unions is you have no choice but to announce certain changes that you plan to implement, try to bargain them with the players, And if it doesn't work out, you may unilaterally implement those changes. So this is all part of a strategy that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, is using in order to make sure that the rule changes he wants come into effect. So what are these rule changes and why are they so important? And why will they impact both MLB and NFL? Let's start with the easy one. They want to shorten the regular season. This should not be a shock. We've spoken on this show many times about the 82-game regular season and the concept of load management and all the issues that that basically gives to the TV partners and to the fans. That is something the NBA would like to get rid of. So they're talking about shortening the season by four games. So each team, instead of having 41 home games and road games, would have 39 home games and road games. It may sound like no big deal to you, but actually, From a math standpoint, that's 5% of the home gate revenue, which means for the NBA teams to be where they were before this change, every single price you pay inside your NBA home team arena has to go up by 5% before they just break even from the year before. Then it goes up another 3-4% just because they can. So the prices are going up, number of home games down. So that's not a loss of revenue for the NBA teams. Second change, a reseeding of the playoffs. Epic. One of the biggest complaints fans have, and why shouldn't they have it? Why is it the Western Conference Finals and the NBA are always so exciting and by the time the NBA Finals come, it seems as though it's a letdown? Why in the Major League Baseball, we saw the Astros-Yankees. Would you have preferred to have seen that? in the World Series? Or would you prefer to see that in the American League Championship Series? Why is it that we can't have the two best teams in every sport, no matter what, playing each other in the final series, World Series NBA Finals? You can't do it in football because it's a one and done. And a top seed can lose. That's how it goes. But for a seven-game series, when you get down to the top four teams, the NBA is talking about reseeding the teams which means the team with the first best record of the four remaining would play the team with the fourth best record of the team remaining with reckless indifference toward which conference or which division they're in. It's about time. In the copycat world that is professional sports, you can look for Major League Baseball once realignment comes, which will come, this will be a topic that someone talked to me about, but this is going to come well after uh, the new collective bargaining agreement when there's realignment, but these are changes that are going to happen. So imagine an NBA where the conference finals, you have one versus four and two versus three. Back in the days, you could have had an NBA final, let's say, of Warriors-Lakers. This year, you could have Rockets-Lakers. You could have Clippers-Lakers. Likely two Western Conference teams. But then they get to... That is a live look at Siri, which I'm not exactly sure how that happened. But the Lakers meet the Spurs. So the NBA has another rule change that they're doing, and this one has money written all over it. They're talking about expanding their postseason. I think it's a terrific idea that MLB is looking at, and in the competition committee, we were looking at that for years. We want more play-in games, not more series of two out of three, but more play-in games. And the NBA is saying that they want to do that, too. The NBA is missing something that the NFL has and MLB has. And in this world of copycat, believe me, they're going to get it. And what they're going to get are two extra playoff teams who have to play a play-in game just to have the right to play a first-round series. It's brilliant. Right now, you've got eight teams per, de- per conference who make the playoffs, 16 out of 32. The question is, what if there could be 18 teams? But it's really 20 now. All of a sudden, you've got 20 out of 32 teams who have something to play for and have a chance to be in the playoffs. Today's November 25th. It's been about a month and a half, almost two months since the wild card games. Can you name the MLB wild card game participants? Do you remember who the Washington Nationals had to beat just to get to the first round? They beat the Brewers. Do you remember? every wild card game? Likely not, but you did at the time. And the other thing you may not remember is that you got to watch those games on TV. And the other thing you may not have known is those games cost money, and that money goes to the owners. So when the NBA tells you they're coming up with these significant changes, number one, they're not going to lose any money from them. But number two, they're actually going to make money while building excitement. This is an example of when changes to a game benefit everybody. They benefit players because if you have a good playoff run, you get paid. They benefit fans because your team has an opportunity to be in a race for longer and has an opportunity to win a championship more and more every single year. And three, you have TV broadcasters, all of whom are looking for live content. So there's more for them to buy, which means there's more revenue taken in by the league. I think the NBA will implement every single one of these changes. This is not a trial balloon by any stretch. This is a feta accompli. What's going to be interesting and a great way to see is whether or not MLB does the same and then NFL tries to figure out a way. Yes, they have the 17 game schedule. MLB is going to do the same. I'm proud of the NBA. The world is changing and it's all about content. We do a segment each day here called uh, You Want to Talk to Samson, and this is a segment that we do purposefully. This is, I want you to tweet at me, or it's called DM, I think is what it's called, at David P. Samson. I do thank you for listening to this podcast, and I want you to please rate it, subscribe to it, tell your friends, give it a five-star rating. I've got 10 people telling me that that matters, and it does, and I'm appreciative. But someone sent me something wanting to know about this new contract signed by the Mariners and what it meant, and what my thoughts were, and how significant it was. Well, in case you didn't realize, Evan White signed a six-year, $24 million contract with the Seattle Mariners. I'm waiting for the applause. You've never heard of Evan White? Are you sure? Well, he's the top prospect of the Mariners. Does that help you? Did you see him last year play at Safeco? No? Oh, you must have seen him at AAA then. That's right. No, you didn't either. Yes, this man has not played one game above double A, not gotten one at bat above double A, and he just got a guaranteed $24 million. That puts the in in insanity. But of course, the Mariners are telling you this is us investing in our future. This is us telling you, the fans, that we are committed to you to bring winning baseball because we've got the biggest drought in postseason history. Thank you so much. Current, actually, the the current team with the longest postseason drought. Second on that list is my old team, the Marlins. It is a fight to the finish between the Mariners and the Marlins who will make the playoffs again. But if the Mariners make it first, that'll leave the Marlins in the pole position. But to signing a player who's never played above double A tell you that you're going to make the playoffs? I've got two words for all the people in Philadelphia. Scott Kingery, Remember him? Yes, he was signed to a deal as well. How's that working? How are the playoff appearances going? If he were not signed to that deal, would he have a spot on the roster? Maybe, maybe not. What this means is Evan White does get a spot on the roster. This means that he is now being paid, not at the minor league rate, but at his major league rate no matter where he plays. That is what a guaranteed contract does it guarantees him an amount without a split. In Major League Baseball, when you sign players to a split contract, it's called the major and minor league contract. When that player's at the Major League level, they are paid at the rate of their Major League deal. So if a player is getting, let's say they're 182 days in the Major League season, and the player makes $182, I'm doing easy math for the people listening, 182 dollars for 182 games. That's a dollar a game. If a player is brought up and plays one game in the majors, he gets paid a dollar. But then when he goes back to the minor leagues and he gets a dollar eighty-two for all of the 182 days, then for the rest of the days he's at the minor leagues, he gets a penny. So the question is, why would the Mariners do this? Because when he's in the minor leagues, Evan White will still be making that same dollar. Yes, it will not count as the 25-man roster payroll, because he won't be on the 25-man roster. But to the owner, it certainly counts. So you better hope you're right when you're making decisions like that. I never had the guts to sign a player that young to a deal. The closest I would come would be with a Christian Yelich, where I already know he's good. I'm just hoping he becomes gooder. Obviously, you know I mean better, greater, historic, MVP-like, Hall of Famer maybe. But if my baseball people came to me and asked me to sign the number one prospect who's never gotten a major league at bat to a major league deal, I can only tell you what my answer would be. It's a hard no. And I mean hard. On a more serious note, I want to, I want to talk about something that uh, it means a lot to me. I, I do have anxiety and I'm, I've never been ashamed to talk about it. I have certain tricks that I do and and certain things that I do to try to curb it. I think I'd mentioned, I don't remember whether it was on this show, but I've certainly mentioned the story before, that prior to any time going on stage, I always forget everything that I'm going to say. When I was in a play, I forgot every line prior to the curtain going up, so I had to keep a script right where the curtain was. When I'm doing a segment on CBS Sports HQ or when I'm doing any sort of interview or any speech, right as I'm being introduced, I have this unbelievable anxiety that is paralyzed. And I talked about on the plane when it happened to me, this is different, this is performance anxiety. Keep your laughs to yourself, boomers. So what I do is I keep something in front of me in writing to start me. So for nothing personal, I keep a pad in front of me that has writing on it. And on that writing, it gives me times and subjects. I also keep a tablet in front of me that gives me topics. And so it reminds me when there's something in my head that I need to say. And too often, people look at this anxiety and they're afraid to talk about it. They're embarrassed by it. They feel as though they're alone and they're the only ones. Well, to me, mental illness is the same as physical health and physical ailments are the same as mental health ailments. There is no difference at all. And yesterday, Brandon Brooks was taken out of a game. Brandon Brooks is the right guard for the Eagles. You've probably heard of him because just this November, he signed the four-year extension. He's the highest paid guard in the National Football League. So this is not a schlepper. This is a major star in the National Football League. And Brandon Brooks has had anxiety-related illness for years. He's missed five games in his career because of it. And yesterday, he could not answer the bell not because of a physical ailment, because of a mental ailment. It's the same thing. It's just as debilitating and just as paralyzing in terms of your ability to be on the field and perform. And he decided instead of hiding from it, he did the opposite. And he addressed it straight up and straight on. It's one of the great changes that I've seen in professional sports over my 20 years. I've never, back in the day, we would not have psychologists, and when we did, they were addressing some sort of performance. Really, they were p- performance coaches. But now there, there's actual help available to all teams for players, therapeutic help to get anxiety under control, because when you have anxiety, it never goes away. It's always there. The best way to explain it to someone who's never had it is picture a little pebble falling off a mountain and the pebble is rolling down the mountain, and then it becomes bigger, and then there's other pebbles, and before you know it, it's an avalanche. That's what anxiety is. It starts as a pebble, and there's nothing you can do, and the avalanche goes down the mountain. For Brandon Brooks, that avalanche happened at the worst possible time. It happened as he was supposed to be out there with his guys, and I want to read you the quote he said because this is very, very quote-worthy and important. I'd like to address what happened yesterday, Brandon Brooks wrote on his social media. I woke up and did my typical routine of morning morning vomiting. It didn't go away like it normally does, but I figured it would calm down once I got to the stadium. It did, but I felt exhausted. The nausea came back and I tried to battle through it and went out for the first drive. The nausea and vomiting came back until I left the field and I tried everything I could to get back for my teammates, but I just wasn't able to do it. Make no mistake, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed by this, nor would I go through daily. I've had this under control for a couple of years and had a setback yesterday. The only thing I'm upset about is that when my team needed me, I wasn't able to be out there with and for them. Lastly, I appreciate the support of my coaches, teammates, and fans. It doesn't go unnoticed. The reason it doesn't go unnoticed is when you've got that level of anxiety, you assume that everyone's looking at you. You assume that everyone's making fun of you. And further, you assume that no one feels anything for you other than anger, that you're not performing and doing the job that you're paid to do. That is not how fans feel anymore, Brandon Brooks. That is one of the great things about this new society that we're living in, where we all have to be more careful about what we say but one thing is that tolerance is going up and the conversation about mental well-being is happening. So Brandon Brooks, I definitely hope you get well soon. And I hope that you realize that we will always, always be behind you no matter what. Well, for those of you who, uh, who don't know, I've been involved with Yale University, not as a student, uh, but I've been involved with Yale for, for many years. And uh, I'm lucky enough to sit on a council on a board there. And one of the things that I've learned very quickly is that the Yale Harvard football game is a religious experience and the single most important day on the calendar. Because you can have the worst possible season in any sport. And if you beat Harvard, all of a sudden, it's all good. The competition between Harvard and Yale is not just in the classroom. It's not just for research dollars. It's not just for Nobel laureates and Pulitzer Prizes. It's also for football. Yes, believe it or not, we don't talk about it much on CBS Sports HQ, but there definitely are. is, is an Ivy League and the Harvard-Yale game happened this weekend. Now, why would I be talking about it? Is that what you're saying? Is it possible you don't know what went on during the Harvard-Yale game? yesterday. Did you not see the protests? This is during a game. This is at the Yale Bowl. You are now looking at Yale students who are proudly sitting on the field while halftime is going on and they are protesting what people referred to as climate change. And the game got delayed because they would not leave the field. And then more students joined. And then the broadcaster who's broadcasting the game had to leave the game and go to the West Virginia game, much to the love and anti-chagrin of our producer, Matthew Coca. But they had to go to another game because these students wouldn't leave the field. And I had to sit through an entire day today of people tweeting at David P. Sampson and talking to me here at the studio, about how crazy and wrong it is to have protested and interrupted the Harvard-Yale football game and how pointless it was because at the end of the day, it's not going to have any impact on climate change. Well, I would like to explain what protesting is for those of you who don't protest. And for those of you who do, I'd like to tell you what it is to have maximum impact for your protest. This was not a protest to stop climate change. This was not a protest to bring awareness to climate change. This was a protest that was solely, solely meant to bring attention to the board of Yale and the board of Harvard about how they invest the endowment of their particular schools. See, there are big endowments at schools like this. Yale's endowment is in the tens and tens of billions, over $30 billion. And that, obviously, that endowment gets invested, it gets invested in companies and funds, and other vehicles that pay interest and that give you a return on your investment. And that money is then used to improve your school. It's used for financial aid. It's used to make the school more accessible to students who can't afford it. But some of the investments are in companies that may not have climate change at the top of their to-do list of what to avoid and how to help. Some of the investments are made with companies who really have no interest in reducing fossil fuel emissions. Some investments are made with companies who look at climate change simply as another pain in the neck on the way to lessened profitability. Other investments are made in companies who are trying to cure and fix climate change and stop it from continuing. Yes, investments are made across all spectrum when you run an endowment. But what these kids were protesting is they wanted the board and the divestiture committee to stop the investment in companies who do not pay attention to the importance of reducing fossil fuels. Did they accomplish their goal? Yes. The board at Yale and Harvard pay very close attention to the Harvard-Yale game. That is the perfect time to have this protest. Do you think if they had protested at halftime of the Yale-Harvard lacrosse game, that would have stopped the game, that it would have gotten attention on nothing personal or anywhere. No, they got attention and they got attention from the people they needed to get attention from. That is what marks a good protest. That is the whole point of a protest to effectuate change from the people who are able to actually make that change. Don't come here to CBS and protest climate change because I'm talking about nothing personal. What can I do? all right, I'll buy an electric car. What more can I do? You want to protest. You go with the biggest possible impact at the most impactful time. Congratulations to the Yale players and the Yale protesters. I wouldn't have done it. Don't agree with what they were doing. That said, they were damn effective because they're Yellies. When I helped build Marlins Park, I always dreamt and and I really always wished that there would be football at Marlins Park, and I tried to get the Miami Hurricanes to play, and I had plenty of talks with Donna Shalala, who was then the uh, uh, president of the University of Miami, and they were always worried about the configuration, worried that there wasn't enough room behind the end zones, and they were worried their players would get hurt. By the way, the picture we're showing is actually, that's not a baseball game. Well, many of you were going to say that because the stands are so empty. That's actually pregame of a football game, and that's a football stadium where one end zone is on the third baseline and the other end zone is down the right field line. Yes, the football field fit, and I told University of Miami that, but they wanted to do a deal and play up where the Dolphins play, which is about 45 minutes to an hour north of their campus. Marlins Park is built right on the site of the Orange Bowl. It would be perfect for the Hurricanes to play there. But alas, they chose not to until yesterday. Now, there were big concerns yesterday or Saturday when the Hurricanes were playing the team from FIU. And they were concerned about injuries because there was not a lot of space behind the end zones. Well, if you watch that unbelievable upset that took place, Butch and his boys completely outplayed the Hurricanes It was a disastrous game for the Canes. Maybe the biggest loss in their entire school program history. But what bothered me the most is that the biggest concern that the Hurricanes had were injuries. And they were right. Because there were an unbelievable number of injuries during this game. The problem is, none of those injuries were actually injuries. It turns out that Butch and Dem boys decided that the best thing for them to do would be to pretend they're injured in order to get breaks, in order to use clock management, in order to attempt to preserve a victory over the 20-point favored Hurricanes. I found it to be disgraceful, and here's why. Every other league has had the same issue, so I'm not angry with Butch Davis. What's disgraceful for me is that college football has not yet changed the rules the way the NFL and the NBA have. And the way MLB doesn't need to because there's no clock. What do I mean? Does anyone remember the 24-second injury timeout in the NBA? Well, if you don't, here's what it is. There was one opportunity per half of the National Basketball Association to call an injury timeout and get a 24-second break when the clock would stop. In the old days, it would happen when a player was actually injured. And then flopping started. And then phantom cramping started. And then the NBA quickly realized that the 24-second injury timeout was being completely used and abused, and players were faking injuries to avail themselves of that timeout. So what did the NBA do? They gave each team a 20-second timeout per half, and they don't care if a player's injured. If you want to pretend you're injured, great. If you don't want to pretend you're injured, great. If you're healthy, fine. But you get one 20-second timeout, and that's it per half in the NFL. They didn't want to bother to see whether or not the NFL players were actually injured. How do you prove that an NFL player is cramping or that his leg hurts or he got the wind knocked out of him? There's no way to do it. So the NFL changed the rules. There are now clock penalties. There's loss of timeouts with injuries toward the end of halves and games. College football needs to do the same thing. It is absolutely unacceptable that you could have a team like FIU get absolutely sullied the way they have since their big win because of the fake injuries. Don't give a program an opportunity to expand the rules enough to their advantage that you end up getting embarrassed because what teams have told you is that they'll do anything. They don't care if a player's injured or not injured. If they can gain a minuscule advantage, they're going to do it. And that's what you saw FIU do, and it takes away from Butch Davis's victory over Manny Diaz Jr.'s Hurricanes, and that, to me, is a problem that needs to be corrected in college football. Anyone else sit around and binge anything last weekend? Because I did. Season four, Man in the High Castle, the final season. I watched all 10 episodes. I couldn't stop. It was like a rash that you can't stop itching. Why? Why? because it feels so good. You're watching and you're saying, how could someone like Philip Dick exist? Philip Dick is the writer of the, man, of the Man in the High Castle, of the book on which it's based on, the story on which it's based on. Philip Dick, if you look at him, has really been the author of many of the great science fiction t- uh, books of all time from which movies have come, including Total Recall. But The Man in the High Castle is a story about what would happen If we, the Americans, did not win World War II, imagine a United States where Japan runs the western side of the US and the Nazis run the eastern side of the US because the Nazis won the war. The middle of the US is what's called the neutral zone. Picture Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, that's the total neutral zone. So, all I can tell you is that when you are in the neutral zone, you're completely safe. But when you're in Nazi territory, you better be saying hi, Hitler. This is what America was like and the story of the man in the high castle. And for three seasons, we learned about both Japanese culture. We learned about what it meant when they took over the Western states and what it means when Americans had to become Nazis who lived on the eastern side of the country. Season four tied the entire series up in a perfect bow, and they did it in a way that was immaculate and beyond perfect because they knew it was their last season. It's why I can't wait for season six of Schitt's Creek. Because when you know it's the end and you're not just canceled, you get to actually end the story arc. You end the character's dreams. Why did I say character's dreams? Because dreams and other worlds are a major part of the man in the high castle. Because there's more to this world than just this planet. And if you're looking for a story and a show to binge, you can't start at season four. You have to start at the beginning and go straight through. I've just given you the perfect antidote to your Thanksgiving stuffing. When you can't get off the couch and you're done watching back to back to back to back NFL games, start the man in the high castle and we'll see in six days. Season four was a perfect way to end it. I spend more time on pick of the day than I choose to even tell you because I take it seriously. I want my picks to win and I'm dead serious about them. And when I'm going through them, I'm thinking about what is the best value and what's the way to make you the most money. And I look back and I, and I think about players and quality and I'm here to talk about Lamar Jackson. I'm gonna give you my pick right now and just tell you the Ravens are winning this game. Tonight, they play the Rams. You're gonna take the Ravens but the reason I want you to watch the game is not that you're going to win money because whether you take the money line or give it the field goal, you're going to win. The reason I want you to watch is because there's a quarterback on that team named Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson, if you haven't heard of him, has a chance to have a record-setting season because he doesn't just pass the ball, he also runs the ball. He's like an old-school quarterback in that he can pass. He's like a new-age quarterback in that he can run. And he's like the greatest college quarterback ever, who can also succeed at the NFL level. Why is it noteworthy to watch Lamar Jackson? Because guess where he wasn't picked? In the number one slot. Or the number two slot. Or the number three slot. That's right. He was the number 32 pick in the draft. So for all the teams who are tanking out there, make sure you watch tonight. And explain to me tomorrow, you can DM me and we may do a Let's Talk to Samson segment about it. I want to know why you think tanking for the top pick is the automatic panacea. I want to know why you think that you have to go through years of absolute horrific play just to try to gain a top spot, thinking that you will get that type of difference maker. I have got a way better idea. How about... Paying each scout an extra $25,000 per year, give them all raises, then hire five more. Throw away your new computers and send the scouts on the road and have them watch players and have them tell you who they think is going to be successful at the pro level, whether it's MLB or NFL. Because while analytics are taking over the world, they don't show this, I'm pointing to my heart, they don't show this, I'm pointing to my brain because no one is using these. I'm pointing to my eyes. Did 31 people possibly miss Lamar Jackson? Well, it certainly looks that way. But maybe it's possible they didn't miss him at all. Maybe they weren't allowed to take him because no one thought that he'd become who he was. Well, who he is, is the MVP of the National Football League. Sorry, Russell. Lamar's going to win it. And you're going to watch him. And you're going to win money. Lamar Jackson, I'm glad no one tanked to get you. And for the tankers out there, I hope you don't succeed, and I hope the team with the 32nd pick gets the best player in the draft. My favorite part of the day is my wait and see part. I use wait and see all the time at David P. Sampson because it's, it matters, right? Because you've got a wait to see, meaning we're going to know. It's either going to be right or going to be wrong. Well, you heard me tell you that the Tottenham Spurs were going to win their game Saturday, and I know you were watching at 7.30 a.m. against West Ham. You better have been. I was. Tottenham crushed them 3-2. That's sort of a crushing in soccer. It was 3-1 and then became 3-2, but you knew that they'd win their first game under their new coach. Then I had to wait to see about the games yesterday, and I came this close, but I got cocky. I told you that you would have the Eagles win. I told you you'd have The Niners win and the Patriots. I went two out of three. I lost that. My wait to see today is about Colin Kaepernick. Hey, Colin, you're not going to get signed. And wait to see, you're not going to get signed this year or next year. And it has nothing to do with kneeling. It has nothing to do with protesting. It simply has to do with the fact that you're not good enough to be a National Football League quarterback anymore. No matter what the people may say in the producing booth right now, that's you, Coca. The reality is that there's no collusion. This is simply Colin Kaepernick not being good enough. So the way to see is don't sit around waiting to see whether he'll play this year. He won't. But we're going to revisit this next year when the entire season goes by and Kaepernick does not take a snap. But Colin, you have to know this is just business. It's nothing personal.